This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to a Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Kate Andrews and I'm joined by The Spectator's political editor, James Forsyth, and the historian Orlando Fijes. Now, James, about a month ago, if you were looking at Europe, you would have seen countries with very different perspectives on Russia, real divisions, especially when it comes to how it might respond through economic sanctions if Russia were to make a move. We now flash forward about four weeks and Europe has changed and it's changed utterly. Yes, I think it's very striking that in the kind of premature victory article that was published on Russian state media, they talk about these splits in Europe between Germany and France and Britain. You know, this was something that the Kremlin was very satisfied with. You know, that they thought that there were these differences in position between Washington and London and Berlin and Paris, and they thought they could exploit them. Vladimir Putin launching a full-blown invasion of Ukraine has brought the West and Europe more together, I think, than it has been at any point since since in living memory. Because if you, I was going to say 1989, but obviously in 1989, Eastern Europe was still in the Warsaw Pact, forcibly under Soviet control. And I think if you look now, you see a greater level of unity. I think you see the change in attitude from the fact that six weeks ago, when the UK first sent lethal aid to Ukraine, they went on this very circuitous flight path. They didn't fly over Germany because the UK didn't dare ask Berlin for permission for fear that Berlin would say no. You now have Germany sending weapons direct to Ukraine, abandoning Germany's post-war history of not sending weapons into war zones. You have Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, committing to spend 2% of defence on GDP in, by 2024. You have overwhelming public support for that in Germany. You have, you know, in January, two-thirds of the German public wanted to carry on with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that would bring Russian gas direct into Germany. Germans have now cancelled that project, and two-thirds of the German public support that. We are seeing massive changes in attitude. You have Emmanuel Macron, basically, still talking to Vladimir Putin, but warning everyone that, you know, Putin is the worst is yet to come, that Putin is intent on full-blown invasion. And you see a level of unity not just in Europe, but among the the broader G7, I think what you could call the broader Western alliance, that we have not seen for decades. Mm. Orlando, our editor at The Spectator, Fraser Nelson, has written his Telegraph column today on the idea that Putin will come to regret that his illegal war has united Europe against him. What do you make of that thesis? Yes, I would agree with it. I think it's been a miscalculation at every level, militarily, in terms of the resolve and courage and determination of the Ukrainians to resist. And also, I think he's miscalculated in terms of the solidarity of his own government. I mean, there are signs of cracks developing, no less than uh, Anatoly Sobchak's wife was uh, just in the Senate today, accusing her fellow senators of effectively ramping up a sort of climate of fear and terror and wanting explanations of why it was that, for example, from one unit that she was reporting on, only four out of 100 soldiers came back alive. And that there was evidence she was bringing to light and wanting explanations for that 
those soldiers, most of the soldiers in that unit, had been forced to sign or had had their contracts to fight signed for them. So once this starts happening, I think there will be more opportunities for Europe to push on and take further initiatives to try and work in that crucial sphere of trying to influence, trying to soften the people around Putin, but also further down the governmental system who just will begin to dig in their heels and ask questions. And once that happens, however much control Putin may think he has over media, you know, rumours will spread, people will talk, people will publish things that are not meant to be there, people will start looking for further information. And I'm, I'm just hoping there will be a ripple effect. But although... I'm very encouraged by the unity of Europe and the measures taken so far, particularly from the Germans and the cancellation of Nord Stream 2 and the brilliant move of freezing Russian state banks' foreign assets. All of that's encouraging. Nevertheless, I think we're going to have to look to a much more coordinated policy, particularly, I think, for the humanitarian crisis. I think that Europe needs to be thinking about much more aid to the frontline countries of Hungary and Poland and Slovakia in dealing with the, the refugee crisis. And I think that we're probably going to need some sort of kinder transport operation to help with that, to get people out of the danger zones. And I think perhaps above all, Europe needs to think about the counter sanctions that are likely to come from Russia. Because, as you know, EU countries are heavily dependent on, on Russian gas and oil, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe. And so some sort of measures are going to have to be put in fairly quickly for coordinated European Western responses to that impending crisis if this isn't going to turn even much more ugly. Because once people become desperate, then who knows which way politically it may go. I mean, you know, one dreads to think of the possibility of, of Hungarian and Polish people beginning to turn against the refugees simply because they're taking up resources. So a European package of comprehensive measures is needed to deal with this crisis. It's not going to end soon. This is going to go on for months. James Orlando speaks there of Russia's miscalculation, and I think it's becoming increasingly established that this war is not going to plan for Vladimir Putin. But that being said, is Europe running out of cards to play? It has implemented its economic sanctions. A lot of private companies have decided to divest out of European stocks and shares. And yet it is still very well established that European countries do not want to put boots on the ground. Vladimir Putin, while it may not be going to plan, is making inroads. So could it be that the unity was easy at the beginning stages of this? Surprising, but actually relatively easy. And now is where the hard bit begins. Yes, but I think one crucial thing is, I think if you talk to senior people in the British government at the very beginning of this crisis, when the worry was that Putin would win a rapid victory in the war, he would install a puppet government in Kiev, and then in a few months' time, people would start to argue for kind of creeping normalisation. People would start saying, look, these sanctions, they're very economically painful for us too. Maybe we should ease up on them a bit or the enforcement of them would become more lax. I think that because of the Ukrainian resistance, Putin's initial plan to win a very quick victory, trying to land paratroopers at the airport and seize control of Kiev in days, you know, that has clearly failed. And I think if he does to Kiev what Russian forces did to Grozny or to Aleppo, I do not think you will see anyone in Europe arguing for easing up on those sanctions. 
And I think those sanctions will take a huge toll on the Russian economy. You look at the fact that they haven't dared, as you write on Coffee House Kate, they haven't dared open the Moscow Stock Exchange yet. And I think that, you know, you've just had Microsoft announce on, late on Friday that it is too putting out of Russia. These are all things that are going to begin to materially affect people. You know, I think it would be very hard for Russian domestic flights to operate in a few weeks' time because they won't be able to get the parts and the maintenance that they need to keep those planes safe. And so I think that, you know, as Orlando says, this is going to go on for a long time. Economic sanctions, you know, yes, they've had an immediate impact, as Orlando said, with this surprise move of freezing the Russian central bank's assets, which means that Putin has essentially lost two-thirds of the war chest he was planning to use to prop up his economy and, and cope with the sanctions. Those sanctions will begin to bite more and more over time. I also think, just to, to pick up another thing that Orlando said, you look at the steps that Vladimir Putin is taking to clamp down on the remaining bits of independent media in Russia. You look at the how strict the punishments are for spreading so-called misinformation about the war. And it's, to my mind, amazing that that misinformation includes calling it a war or an invasion. These things, to me, suggest a real worry among Putin's inner circle about how Russian public opinion, especially in Moscow and St. Petersburg, would react to the news of what is actually happening in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Orlando, what do you make of this idea that unity can be sustained? Let's say Vladimir Putin were to shut off energy supply to Europe, something that European countries are reported to be preparing for. That would immediately hit countries like Germany and their citizens far harder than it would here in the UK. Is that when you might see more division and splits? Or are you confident, as James is, that the unity will continue? No, I think the mood is is resolute. I mean, I think people are really fed up with this bullying and this aggressive behaviour from Russia. And they there's a huge amount of sympathy for Ukraine. And, and one would hope that that resolve would see its way through. I mean, we are moving towards a warmer spring, hopefully. And we need to get these contingency plans in place. But I think we should also be careful about the sanctions. I mean, I agree that we need to push on with sanctions, but I think that that blanket sectoral sanctions, they don't tend to be that effective in Russia because people have all sorts of ways of just surviving and the people who you want to hit, who have actual dollar reserves, to savings to call on, assets and all the rest of it, have probably been given enough warning to get their assets out. I mean, I, I think that, you know, London grad has been in flight from London for some time in terms of capital assets. So you've got to be careful about who you are hitting. And if you just have major sanctions that affect consumers in Russia, that may well play into Putin's hand, as it has done after 2014, with, with you know, Putin effectively, through his propaganda machine, able to, to convince most older people that it's the fault of the West, that it's an anti-Russian campaign. So I think that the uh, sanctions need to be a lot more targeted. As still, we need to have much better targeted sanctions against not just oligarchs, but against people who take advantage of of the West for its schools and its property and, and the assets that they can park here. Because, let's face it, most of Russia's capital wealth is abroad. If you have wealth, you immediately take it abroad. So there's a, probably a lot more sort of wealthy, middle-class Russian assets to be gone after. And although that will hurt the middle classes, 
those are the people we need to influence because they, they're not necessarily in government, but they're in all of those other elements of the Russian system, managerial positions, official positions, technical positions, who will, you know, make life very difficult. I don't think making blanket sanctions that are going to make people in, in provincial towns effectively have nothing to buy from the shops is going to be that effective because they'll just go to their allotments and grow what they need to eat. So these sanctions need to... We need to build them up, but we need to target them more carefully because I do believe that there is leverage to be had with all those people in the Russian political elite, business elite, not just the oligarchs, but people lower down than that who are going to be the key players here. And if I can just add to that, I'm really, really worried about this clampdown in Russia. I, I have friends who I can't get hold of. This campaign has clearly been planned for a long time. There has been attacks on civil society groups for a long time in Russia. And, you know, I don't think it's too outlandish to say that we can be facing it, the possibility in Russia of, of mass arrests. And that is something we also have to think about. Because if we think about the discourse that has evolved around Ukraine, there's a lot of very understandable, Ukraine is us, Ukraine is Europe, the Russians are barbarians. But we have to realise that the ordinary Russian people are also victims of this and may well need help, if not economically, then at least in terms of visas and all, all the rest of it. Because if there is to be a post-Putin political system, if there is to be a split in, in the Putin regime, then the last thing we want is Putin to be replaced by Putin Mark II, or Putin Mark II, who's worse than Putin Mark I, because they're all the more desperate. We will need, at that point, we will need a viable political class, able to become civic activists, able to renovate the political system. And we need them on our side. So we, I don't think this polarisation between Ukraine is Europe, Russia is Asia sort of thing that's going on is, is helpful in that regard. On the point of mass arrest, the Duma today announced that it was passing a law so discrediting the Russian military is now punishable by up to 15 years in prison. James, last question. Do you think that this transformation that we're witnessing in Europe is temporary? Or do you think it's going to become ingrained? Germany, for example, has suspended the certification of its gas pipeline Nord Stream 2, but it has explicitly not said we're cancelling it outright. You have countries that are historically neutral. Switzerland, that's going to bring in economic sanctions. You have Sweden, which hasn't sent arms to a war zone in 80 years, according to Fraser's column today, which dispatched 5,000 anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. Is this a new Europe? Or is this a unique situation? So on Nord Stream 2, I think it's worth noting that the company involved has now gone into bankruptcy. And because of the sanctions that the US has placed on Nord Stream 2, after the Germans announced they weren't going to certify it, I think Nord Stream 2 is dead as an idea. And I think it is. I think that the fact is, you know, I would never have thought that you would find a poll in Germany where only 6% of Germans view Russia as a reliable ally. I think this experience means that, you know, Europe is going to get serious about getting off Russian oil and gas. I also think that there was a, a belief that wars between European sovereign states were not going to happen because the consequences were too grim. Putin has completely shaken that assumption. 
And I think that, you know, I was talking to one European diplomat and they were making the point that, you know, they keep thinking through these options when people talk about, you know, Putin, will he try and establish a land corridor to Kaliningrad? Will he try and take Gotland? You know, all of these things you had previously thought, well, no, he won't do that. that that's too extreme. Given the fact he has now launched this full-sale invasion of Ukraine, you know, he, you know, there was a lot of people thought he would indulge in kind of salami-slicing tactics. You, know, you recognise the republics. You then send Russian troops there, essentially replacing the Russian proxy forces. They then push out and try and, and take more land. And you, you, you build up gradually like that. Instead, he has gone for a full-blown invasion of, of the whole of Ukraine. And he made it quite clear in his conversation with Emmanuel Macron that you know, that is what he is interested in doing. I mean, that, that will change Europe. And I think it is worth remembering that, you know, as long as he is there, I think the threat that he poses, the threat of having someone who is very keen to escalate, someone who is strategically rash, sitting on Europe's borders with nuclear weapons, that is going to force Europe to be more united and express kind of greater foreign policy solidarity with each other. I also think that there is a, a feeling here that things are not possible until they are possible. And I think if you had said, you know, the US has been pressuring Germany to cancel Nord Stream 2 for years now. And the Germans have just said, look, you know, where else are we going to get our energy? They have now clearly know that they need to get their energy from somewhere else. You know, Germany is going to build liquefied natural gas terminals. You know, those can be up and running in about six months in a floating form. I also think on Orlando's point, you know, it's really worth noting that Europe's demand for gas is two and a half times lower in the summer than the winter. And I think that does that does make it easier to handle this if Putin does shut off the gas supply and the oil supply. I also think that if he does that, he is going to worsen the economic situation he's in. He is getting, you know, the only foreign currency he's getting at the moment is through these sales. If those go, then I think he's, he's in a really deep, deep position. And as you've written, Kate, the really striking thing is how a kind of G20 economy has been essentially turned into a, akin to Iran or North Korea pretty much overnight by these sanctions. James and Orlando, thanks for joining me. 